you truly believe deep down that what you are helping other people with will advance them in their career as an entrepreneur or a business in a, you know, in a holistic approach with some large companies and so on, if you truly believe that what you can share with them will help them grow, it's really easy and it gives you a sense of confidence when you're talking with them and they suddenly have that aha moment. How do you get 10,000 people to take a step to the left? What's behind the relentless mindset of a world champion? Why do teams of exceptional talent fail? How do you manage the pressure to perform? These are just some of the curious questions we will attempt to answer as we bring you world leaders, curious minds, exceptional talent, successful CEOs, and incredible human beings who know how to inspire great leaders and are inspiring great leaders themselves. I am Craig Johns, high performance leadership expert, international speaker, and CEO of Speakers Institute Corporate and World Sport Coach. This is the Inspiring Great Leaders podcast with ordinary don't belong. Welcome to the Inspiring Great Leaders podcast. Today I'm pleased to bring you an expert in communication who focuses on the psychology, biology and behavioral science behind the human brain and its ability to communicate. He is the author of the best-selling book, I Get You, a certified speaking coach and has facilitated over 1,500 corporate workshops worldwide with some of the biggest brands on the planet. His career has included roles as estate manager, franchise director, CEO, sales coach, and auctioneer in the real estate industry, with companies such as Century 21, Hodges, Run Property, and Rain and Horn Group. Most recently, he is a communication and presentation coach, keynote speaker, facilitator, and business coach for Compass Sales Management, Speakers Institute Corporate, and Speakers Institute. I'm honored and to introduce you to a professional speaker, auctioneer, and a celebrant, known for his humor and ability to tell compelling stories, and is passionate about communication can change your destination. Warren Tate. Warren, welcome to the show. Thanks. Oh, excuse me. Thanks. How's that for a communications expert? Thanks very much, Craig. Hey, an honor to be here, and I've really been looking forward to today, and that sounds pretty impressive, that, uh, that bio. I like that. Yeah, it's good. I made at least 50% of it up. So <laughs> no, it's good. You have a, a very good career and really excited to dive deep into it today. And we have a, a really nice connection and we've known each other for a few years now at Speakers Institute mm-hmm. and through and working together at Speakers Institute Corporate. And I think you've even emceed me on stage and off stage uh, when I split my tri suit. So um, it's good fun. We have some good times together. Oh, look, you have to... You have to have a lot of fun, and it's part of what I what I live by. You have to have fun doing what you do. If it's not fun, why worth? It's not worth doing, right? Yeah, correct. Now, uh, I've known a lot about you over the last couple of years, but uh, I don't know so much about you as a child. So, what? Where did you grow up, and what was childhood like? 
Well, it was the 24th of June, 1967. I was born to Pat and Raymond Tate. Oh, is that going back too far? <laughs> actually, the irony of that is it, it is a big part of my life when I was born. I was actually born with a hole in my heart. And it was one of those ones which wasn't too big that needed an operation straight away, but not one of those ones that was so small that it healed up on its own. And it sort of provided a foundation for who I am now, today. Basically, I was uh, it impacted on the amount of oxygenated blood that would get through my system. It impacted on my growth. So I was always the shortest at school. Uh, so yes, it had a major part of me growing up uh, in downtown Sunny Hyatt here in Melbourne, Australia. And yes, used to get up to all sorts of mischief, riding skateboards, billy carts and so forth over at the old Southland shopping centre there with when they used to shut at 12 o'clock on a Saturday. Yes, I'm old. Thanks for that. <laughs> And yeah, and that, and that was my livelihood. And, and then it went on to sport. I just love sport. You know, I was, my parents had a big upbringing with the swimming club, Cheltenham Amateur Swimming Club. So I was a competitive swimmer and uh, swam with people such as uh, Nicole Livingston, which was great. Yeah, All, some cool. very famous people went through that club, but played footy, cricket, tennis, and then in later years, golf. And I played pennant golf for Victoria Golf Club. So always a sporting background, always energetic. Uh, but that all switched around when I had my operation at the age of 15. And that just, uh, I started to grow then, which was nice. <laughs> so that certainly helped in, in my later years as in going to keeping up my fitness and well-being and going to gym, which is now six days a week. Yes, I'm one of those crazy people. Uh, it's <laughs> all good. And maybe we'll dive a bit deeper into that later on because the importance of leaders and people you know, looking after their health and their energy management is really important. But keeping in our formative years there, was there something that were, you know, you, you dream about, it was on your mind, you're like, yeah, this is cool, I want to do this later on in life, or, or was there any big idea that sat there in that beautiful brain of yours? <laughs> Actually, I think the, I, I can't remember the gentleman's name, but you know, my father with my upbringing, he worked for the Gas and Fuel Corporation for 41 years, you know, his whole belief was get a job, get your superannuation package and, you know, that's it. Stay in the one job for life. And I, I followed that rule in regards to I joined the bank, then I joined the Gas and Fuel Credit Union following, following his footsteps at the Gas and Fuel. And there was a gentleman that came in one day to collect as all of their pay used to go into their account. And he was a uh, high-level manager within, within the Gas and Fuel. And he was in a new home sales environment. He was a sales manager. And he just looked at me and said, what the hell are you doing here? And I said, well, what do you mean? He's got, you're wasted sitting there behind a glass counter giving out money. You should be in sales. You've got such a great personality. You're a great communicator. I'd love to have a further conversation with you. And until that point, I'd never thought about communication. I'd never thought about being in a sales environment. And that was really the turning point for my love with sales, which is simply communicating with others to achieve an outcome that they desire. And that's all it is, helping others achieve what they desire through solving a problem. And it hasn't changed right through to today. That's all I do. I help C-suite executives solve the problem that they're wanting to solve in their communication and presentation journey. Yeah, it's good. It's such a servant heart. And, and it's nice that someone could identify that at a, at a young age for you and send you on that new direction uh, that can really that really plotted your career. Were you a, a natural leader or more of a follower when you were at high school? 
Uh, I was a follower because, again, being the being the short, dweeby little kid, um, always picked on. <laughs> mm. So yeah, I was always sort of that that short kid that just tried to stay low, which I didn't need too much practice at, and to stay away from uh, any trouble. Although I found trouble on weekends, but that's a whole other story. <laughs> well, we won't go there. And you talked about the person that obviously put you in the direction of sales. Was there any other role model that really stuck out, uh, stood out in your formative years that you know really shaped the way? Um, maybe you think or the way you are today? I think that came along with my desire to learn and wanting to always grow. And, you know, I've done a lot of seminars and things over the years, you know, Anthony Robbins many moons ago and so forth. But I really have to look at um, Sam Cawthorn when he switched my thinking from what I was doing to where I am today. So what I mean by that is I was always about me because, again, being that short little dweeby kid, I didn't get much attention. So when I found this, I won't say a gift, but when I worked my backside off to become a presenter and speaker and so on, I was starting to get recognised and I and I loved it. And I absolutely loved it. But the biggest challenge was, and, and I still remember the day when Sam said it to me, he said, you, you got to get out of that mindset. It's not about you, it's about your audience. So it really switched my entire mindset on how I present, how I work with others. I mean, I always wanted to help others grow, but also liked a bit of adulation as well when I was up there saying, hey, I did that, I did that, I did that. Hey, how cool am I? When now I don't give a damn about that. My sole purpose in life is to help as many people as I can mastering their communication and presentation skills. And I've played a a bit part in some big organisations and I don't go bragging about that. I don't need to because I know with inside of me how good that makes me feel. Yeah, it's a really interesting point there. You know, you talked about shifting that mindset about being about yourself to then focusing on other people. And I think this is something that holds most people back and prevents people from really being able to fulfill their potential and utilize their talent and gifts uh, to a much higher level. And so what are ways that people, and maybe from your experience as well, were able to shift that mindset from going, okay, you know, it's about me to it's now, no, it's about someone else or about other people. It's about your internal belief on what it is that you're delivering and what you're doing. If you truly believe deep down that what you are helping other people with will advance them in their career as an entrepreneur or a business in a you know in a holistic approach with some large companies and so on. If you truly believe that what you can share with them will help them grow, it's really easy and and gives you a sense of confidence when you're talking with them and they suddenly have that aha moment. I mean, just a quick example of that is I do a lot of work with the, an accelerator program in the US called the National Association of Realtors Reach Program. And I find the first discovery call, which goes for 90 minutes, and you can almost, you can almost time it. It's about the 70-minute mark of that 90-minute call that you suddenly get the, now I get what you do. This is your biggest, your biggest point. This is what your, your platform can do to others. And I see that. Suddenly the founders see that, and it switches their mind totally to uh, what they have got in their hands rather than, it's just a 
platform. It's just a product and it just will help people and hopefully I'll make some money out of it. And it re- when, when they have that aha moment, it's really, really exciting from both perspectives. It's all about value, you know? So what's that value proposition? And a lot of people think that their value is a product. It is the service where it's not. It's actually the, what is the outcome you can help them achieve and being able to switch their mindset to that. Fascinating, fascinating. And we will, we're going to dive a lot more into communication later on. Let's take a bit of a break. Uh, I'd like to know what was your first paid job and how did it come about? Well, my first part-time paid job, generally that's most people's ex- exploration of work, was I was, uh, as you may remember before, I was starting to swim. I was a competitive swimmer. And we would go up to a swimming pool called North Lodge and we'd drive past Kingston Heath Golf Club. I mean, one of the best golf courses in Australia, if not the world. And driving past, I'd ask my dad, what, what are all those balls doing there on the, on the fairway? And he said, oh, that's the practice fairway for Kingston Heath. And uh, that's where you, know, you go and warm up before you go out and play your game. I said, oh, why are people stealing them? <laughs> and he said, well, they just practice. <laughs> Sorry, it's the way I thought back then. He said, well, well, people go out and pick them up. You know, probably kids such as you will go up and pick them up and get paid money. At that point in time, a, a light bulb moment went off in my head. I, I'm like, I'm getting 50 cents pocket money a week. I thought I need to explore this. So uh, that very weekend, I jumped on my push bike. I rode down to Kingston Heath Golf Club. Then I went to Yarra Yarra Golf Club. Then I rode to Royal Melbourne Golf Club. And I came back home and dad said, have you been to Victoria Golf Club? I said, I've never even heard of it. He told me where it was and uh, I rode there as well. The weekend following, I picked, I had got a phone call, by the way, this is the old landline, no mobiles back then, clearly. <laughs> and uh, I was engaged to go down and pick up the practice balls on the fairway, hard hat on, cylinder, walking around, being a moving target <laughs> on the practice fairway. Certainly not the way they do it now with the carts and everything else and the wheels at the back. So it was quite a, look, it was great. It was an introduction into the um, into golf. It was an intra- introduction into one of the best golf clubs in Australia. And I got paid $5 for an afternoon's work. So I thought that was unbelievable money. But from there, my very first work work that I did full time was with Westpac Bank as a teller. That's it. And, and, and so working, you know, moving into the bank from high school, um, what sort of lessons did you learn there? Obviously, you're behind the teller, you're, you're communicating with people, obviously, uh, you're shuffling through cash. What were some of the lessons you learned there in probably dealing more with people? Yeah, well, it's a, it's a great point. I've really never contemplated or thought too deeply about that role, but I used to get along well with famously with lots of lots of the regulars who would be coming in. They'd either be retailers or they'd run businesses externally and come in and do their banking on a daily basis. And I was always having a good conversation with them. I knew who they were, what they were up to, who their family members were. And Westpac back then were very much into training and doing courses and so forth. So in the old 360 Collins Street, which is no longer Westpac head office, I don't believe, I would sign up to as many courses as I could. And they would uh, predominantly on how to upgrade to insurance or do traveler's checks back then, all sorts of other aspects of learning how to better communicate, but also, of course, selling products back to the the, uh, the customers that were coming in. And it was it was easy from my perspective because all it is is a simple suggestion. Oh, yep, we're heading off to the States or whatever. I said, well, have you organised your travellers' checks? And they'd say, 
I didn't know we could, we could do it here. Bang. So that education piece and wanting to continually learn uh, has always been a part of my, my driving force in any role. And it brings up an interesting point there because a lot of people will focus on transactional selling. Okay, you you want some money, here's the transaction. Uh, They might go to solution, but what you're talking about there is a lot around relationship selling. So it's going beyond the transaction to the human being and understanding the importance of if I'm going to actually provide value to this person, I actually need to um, connect with them um, on a human level. And so, so that's such a great foundation to have such at an early age in your career. Yeah, I think it was something that was quite innate in how I communicate with people. It's, I thought it was just obvious, but apparently apparently it's not. But it was all about understanding, okay, so you've got a need, you've got an issue. How can I help you um, solve that need or problem or issue? And yeah, I, I just saw it as part being part of not only in a working relationship, but almost being that friendly advisor to them. And I found it quite an easy transition. Mm. And having conversations and talking to different people and life's changed a bit now. There are so many things trying to distract our minds. We have enough words that we speak every day. We've got enough thoughts flowing through our head every day, um, let alone being having the competition of social media and other information that is constantly coming at us how how important is it now to really understand the value of knowing how to get a message across that is clear and the ability to get cut through in any sort of communication you're having yeah well that's the biggest challenge i mean you've got chat gpt you've got uh, google of course where you can find out as much information as you like about any topic You don't need to be the topic expert on anything because anybody can go to the internet and find out and have a wealth of knowledge. The challenge, of course, is the time associated with doing that and then getting through to the actual information that is going to be valuable to that person. So I've always said we've moved from the information age to the curation age. Who can get get that information simplified enough that lands with the audience and that they take something away without needing to spend too much brain power and too much time to be truly able to understand what it is uh, that you're trying to share with them. And we can find a lot of information out there, but a lot of the times you don't really understand it either. And so you talk about curation there, you're pretty much the translator for the person you're speaking with. How can you put it into, I suppose, words or terms and or ways that people can understand it easier than maybe reading a scientific journal or listening to a PhD uh, student who's giving a a doctorate on something that sounds so complex that it's not intelligent anymore because you don't understand it. That's quite funny because my education is not a a long-winded story. You know, it's year 11 twice, which uh, many people do know because I share it as part part of my presentations and keynotes. But I did go on to study and study and study and study. And it is really about understanding that I wanted to be a, you know, seen as somebody who would be respected of, with my smarts about what I'd learned and using such big words and large terminologies and things like that. Whereas when you study communication, which is something which I've taken a really deep dive into, the best communicators, the best translators, as you mentioned, of messages 
are the ones that simplify it down to simple language and to an average age understanding that now there's a, there's a scale that, that you can put sentences and so forth in and it will have a, an age group and a level of understanding. And it's at the age group of 12 to 13 where the most powerful presentations and speeches around the world have had the greatest impact. So I found that fast when I heard that, I couldn't believe it. And they use simple things such as analogy and really simple language to make things easily understood by as many people as possible. And that's that's the art of communication. If you've got something which you want to share, you want to share it with as many people as possible. So therefore simplifying it becomes your your superpower. I don't know how many conversations or meetings I've been in where I'm sitting there and I'm trying to stay engaged. I'm trying to be attentive. I'm trying to figure out what they're saying. And most of the time I'm just really confused. Uh, so how do we how do we make sure that when we're in those meetings or in conversations that we don't confuse the person? Yeah, it really is the simplification of what it is that you want to say. And rather than trying to make it a perfect structure, I, I always find speaking from the heart is far much easier. And there's a couple of secrets. One is analogy. I love the use of analogy because people can really simplify their message by, by talking about something that everybody understands. Uh, it's so powerful and it's often underused. I find there's not enough people using it still to today. And then, of course, my <laughs> my number one, my, my lane, which I love, is story. When you relate complex information into a story, which is about a person, which is similar to the people that you're communicating with, it's, it sends off all sorts of, you know, new, I won't go into the neuroscience and the biology, psychology and everything else about it, but it just resonates with so many more people and they understand it far more clearly when you mention a story. But what if I'm a busy leader, Warren, and I just want the facts and figures. I just want you to tell me what you've got, what you've learned and what I need to do next. Why, why, sh why shouldn't we just go down that route? And why do we need to tap into things like analogy or story? Well, it comes down to neuroscience and the amount of the brain that's activated when you are just using facts and figures and data. If you just use facts, figures, data, you're using about 10% of your brain, the frontal cortex part, and it's a decision-making part of the brain. It's what separates us from Neanderthals and why we survived and they didn't as such if you go back tens of thousands of years. But then we've got the emotional aspect of the brain and the sensory part of the brain, which is another two thirds. And when you start to trigger that in people's minds, they start to lose track of time. I mean, it's like going to a movie, speaking of analogies, it's like going into a movie and you've got a three hour movie and it's a compelling movie, something that you really love and you get invested in the character and you and you just love it. And you walk out and you say, what a great movie. And you check your watch and you go, oh my God, that was three hours. Where did the time go? And it's no different. When you can tell a compelling story and start to really activate the parts of the brain that people get engaged, that's when time becomes irrelevant. Mm. But the other key element to it is to get a better understanding. So Nancy Duarte wrote a great book called Data Story because she's worked with some of the greatest businesses around the planet. And they're all data-driven, especially when you're talking about Silicon Valley and so forth. So much data, so much information. But when you combine it with a story, the understanding level of the listener 
goes up 22 times. I mean, they can, can recall the information and recall a lot of data purely because it was relatable back to a story. And it was some of that research which I did that really got me involved and to this day, always diving deep into story about how important it is, yet still often poorly or not used at all in many corporations. Yeah, it's, it makes you think about you know, change in a way, you know, people, if they can't visualize what the future is going to look like or visualize what the outcome is going to look like, most of the time they won't buy into it. They'll just say, oh, nice idea and walk away. Or they'll say, I don't understand. Um, so that ability to paint a picture through story, through analogy, through a metaphor, etc., is extremely powerful. But for those out there who are sitting there going, well, the last thing I want to do is tell a story and, and people not care or, or think it's boring um, or think they're wasting my time. How, how can they deliver effectively or what's a structure they can use for story that allows them to paint that picture quickly uh, or in a way that is compelling that holds someone's attention who might be time poor uh, so that they can better understand and make better decisions? Yeah, look, it's an extremely... Uh, strong uh, it's a great question and I've, how long have we got <laughs> that that's the challenge here but it's about people really understanding the power of story and what it does and the the one thing that i always say is you, there are stories around us happening every day so i could relay a story that we're having right now about this fantastic podcast and how i got to speak to you and how i got to share some information with you i'll probably tell three four five six if not ten people later on today by sharing a story it's what we do at the end of most business days. If you go home to your significant other, if you're married and, or partnered, or even to your children and you discuss what happened, you're telling a story. And stories are just time and you know, history. Basically, history is a, a cessation of stories over time. And that's where we really need to understand how powerful it is. Without stories, we wouldn't have history. So... My quickest number one tip, I mean, it's a long-winded answer here, but the quickest and number one tip is I want to be in the scene where you learned that from or where you discovered that lesson or where you helped one client. And the best way is to put them in the scene as if they're sitting right next to you. So you don't retell a story, you relive it. So a lot of people often think about, oh, what was that time? And they think about back then and they have to go through their, their brain and trawl through all the data and the information. And they generally tell a case study. But if you describe the scene, just like I did, I was in the car with dad driving past the golf course, golf balls on the side of the road. Why aren't people, you know, why aren't kids stealing them, et cetera? That was a story to get context around my first job and how I rode my bike. You can picture me riding my bike, et cetera. So stories bring a greater understanding of individuals that we care about. And when we are presenting to anybody, we are there to solve a problem. And we have been able to do it before in the past by helping a certain client out. So what you're doing is relaying that story, but as if you are back in that scene, as if you are there visually seeing that whole story evolve in front of you again. And when you do that, story becomes really, really easy. You touch on a, a really important word in there and it's called care. 
and I'm going to take it. I'm going to go sideways here on a bit of a tangent, um, but it's connected as well because I was having a conversation last night, and we we're talking about what coaching is. You know, I coached elite athletes, um, you know, national champions, etc. Worked with some Olympians, and they were like, what was the majority of your role? And I said, well, at least 50% of my role, no matter who I was coaching or, or working with, and it actually falls into leadership as well, is about making sure that the other people feel like they're cared, someone cares about them. At 50%, like even elite level, they just want to know someone cares. And so having, you know, when we're using story, it's actually very, very powerful and to help someone create a greater sense of belonging and connectedness and psychological safety for people as well, because you're starting to show you care about something. And if you can then bring that other person along the way and show that you care about what they do and how you can help them, that's a massive part of leadership. It's a, a huge part of leadership. It builds trust it builds culture. And when you tell a story that you care about somebody, that there's a biological reaction as well, which in oxytocin levels increase in the listener and in the storyteller. And that is the connection love drug. And it's appropriate that it's Valentine's Day today, but it really is a true, uh, a, a truism that this really does build a greater connection with people when you actually care about them. I mean, my partner, Julie, is an incredible manager, went to extremely high levels within the C-suite with a, a merchant bank, a global merchant bank, and was continually, and to this day, continually contacted with messages about how influential that she was in the life of many of the people that worked for her. And she never saw them as subordinates. She always saw them as part of her team, and they were all on the same level and that she cared for them that much and she cared for their growth and she cared for their family life. And that I've also witnessed that in somebody else that, that I live with. And that's so powerful. And it just cements all of this knowledge that I've learned in a real life example of how, how powerful it is in a, in a massive organization. So whether you're in a, in a small organization or a massive organization, it's irrelevant. If you're a leader of people, just show you care. Mm. And, and you were talking about the story before and you're talking about a case study. What, what's really the biggest difference between a case study and a story or, um, or using an analogy? Yeah, well, I'd like to go through a, a process when I talk about, you know, you need to connect with the characters and the characters need to, the people that you're speaking to. So this goes to the understanding of who is in your audience, whether it be one-on-one -on -one or one-to-many, you really need to understand your audience and that deeper level emotional problem. It's not just a, an external fixed problem. It's they have an emotional attachment to the problem which they need to get resolved. And it's when you can connect them with the emotional elements of the character. So when you build the character into the story, it needs to be just like them. They need to understand them. They need to say, how oh, you're talking about me, that's me. And, and when you're talking about how you can then assist them and you come up with your idea and concept and you're talking in dialogue with these characters. So it's not a, not a narration, it's a dialogue. And it's as if they are sitting there in that boardroom or on that stage and you can visualize all of this. And you can visualize the character, you can visualize the problems, you can visualize the pain they're going through. 
And then more importantly, when you implement your solution or you've provided the answers and they've gone ahead and so forth, that outcome, that, that future state that they can be in if they take on what you've just been able to share, they too can have that outcome. And that's super powerful. You can put somebody into a future state of visualization through story and say, okay, a little bit of Harry met Sally. I want what she's having. <laughs> it, it's just making me think, you know, you talked a lot about sport and your upbringing and, and, and I know you love your sport as well. And if we look at this, you know, the most successful athletes have visualized their outcome before they ever achieve it. And not just once they visualize it and it has absolute clarity. If we think about leaders, uh, successful business people, those who can clearly visualize what their future looks like in the outcome. So the, the more, um, the more clear that is, the easier it is to remove things that are going to distract them. So they know what path to hit on. And so I think as leaders, not only are they, you know, visualizing or, or is anyone, you know, using story, but that importance as a leader to clearly articulate through story what the vision looks like um, is extremely important. You can't just expect them to know what's inside your head. You actually have to paint that picture for them. Uh, and so any sort of advice for leaders out there who are either trying to get a team to move in one direction uh, or a project team or it's, or it's a leader of an organization or a country, what can they do to actually help people see clearly where the vision, where the future is going to go? I think it starts with them first and the internal story they're telling themselves. They need to truly believe that they are the right person. They are the only person that can tell that story, that can share that vision, that can transform that business. They are the right person for the job and they can do it and they can lead a team, change the culture of an organisation and do it. I don't think there's a, a huge percentage that deep down truly believe it. You've heard the term imposter syndrome and so forth, that's thrown around a lot, but everybody has self-doubt. But if you truly believe in the outcome of what you're trying to achieve as a leader and you and you live it and breathe it, it becomes very easy to convey and people will follow you. People will come along for the ride because you're continually sharing your vision, sharing your story, reminding them of what's possible, all in a story format, all through the lessons that you've learned. And it starts with a true belief in self first. And if that's not there, people will see, they won't, and they may feel some doubt. Now it's, uh, you know, we've talked about the psychology about all this, but the non-verbals and the, just the slight micro expressions that they may show when they're trying to really drive a motivational message or an inspirational message to a team and they don't really believe it, you'll have people go, yeah, that was powerful. I really like that, but I'm not really feeling it. I'm not quite getting it. It makes sense, but, and that comes from those micro expressions and the delivery of the story, the delivery of the mission, the delivery of that vision that will impact on leadership. So yeah, I'm a big believer of having an internal story that is unstoppable and that you truly believe that it is the only way or well, not necessarily the only way, you can change direction and, and pivot, that term I dislike, but anyhow, you can move if need be 
but you've got to believe. You've got to believe in yourself and what you're doing. Yeah, I really love that. And, you know, got the belief, that attitude, the mindset to do it. But, you know, people looking at uh, you, Warren Tate, and going, gee, you've got a big superpower. You're bulletproof. Um, you're never nervous. You're never anxious. Uh, you never got any self-doubt. And, uh, you know, a lot of people kind of look up and go, oh, wow, they've got it all together. They're naturally, they're gifted. I can't do that because I, I, I'm nervous. I get anxious. I don't want to get up and speak in front of people. How often do you feel nervous or anxious or unsure before you go and present, before you, you get in front of a big stage? Um, and how do you deal with it? I'm nervous every time. I, I had one of the biggest presentations I've delivered just on the weekend, <laughs> which is quite ironic. And it has nothing to do with the corporate setting. It was my partner's daughter's wedding. And I was oh, MC. Beautiful. And, you know, I had the family eyes on me. Some of these people had not even met me previously. Uh, I had the groom's family's eyes on me, uh, yet it had a much deeper feeling and meaning to me. And, yeah, Julie came up to me and said, you look nervous. I said, of course I am. This is, this is a major moment in your daughter's life, a major moment in her husband's life, and it's a huge responsibility. And I take that on board with everything that I do when I'm presenting on a stage. You know, who is in that audience that really needs to hear this message? And I, and if I'm not nervous about it, and if I'm not thinking along that line, my delivery won't be as strong as it needs to be because it's coming from, I, I just want to give value. I want to help them. I want to help them grow. And I know the message is strong. I know it's true to my soul being, and I know it's true through the science. They just need to take it on board and run with it and do something about it. And I think that's the, the biggest challenge here is when you can inspire and then coach and then give them some implementable takeaways, that's when you know that you've had a real impact. And, you know, it's an interesting, interesting you know, point there. You know, you talk about you being nervous and people go, oh, but how do you control the nerve so you don't become over be, you know, overwhelmed by it or you get into a state of anxiousness or stress levels where you freeze? And so, you know, we, we know that people that really care and are interested in what, and love what they do will always be nervous. But how do you control that nerve so it doesn't fall into that state where you, you freeze, you can't remember anything um, and you start worrying about yourself versus actually using that nerves to go into a performance state breathing is optional but advisable <laughs> look anybody that studied breath work and so forth knows the power of breath and what it does for your body but more importantly the biggest energy miser the biggest energy user is your brain and if you're not getting enough energy and oxygenated blood for your brain you're not going to be clear of thinking at any stage whether you're competing in a sport whether you're speaking on stage whether you're having a one-on-one -on -one conversation with somebody that really matters to you so breathing is a critical element and then to get away from that selfish mode and be selfless and to really know that there are people in your audience that need to understand this message and you know you can help them you may not get 100 of the audience and, and i don't expect to there's always going to be some doubters, some outliers, whatever you want to call them. But when you get up there and you start speaking from the heart, and again, it comes back to, by the way, I'm, I'm jumping around a bit, but preparation and knowing your stuff is, is critical. So that there's no thinking of, oh, 
where am I up to? What am I doing? Oh, what, what's next? Oh, uh, um, and then losing your way. That's that's just practice and preparation, continually practice and preparation, practice and preparation. So that doesn't become a an issue under these circumstances. You're just there in the moment, leading from the heart, getting your message out there. And even then, even then, if you have any doubt, I always say to people who are speaking for the first time or the thousandth time, there's always a lighthouse in your audience. So what I mean by that is the lighthouse in, in the audience is you're going to have one, two, three, ten people who are, who are going to be smiling at you. They're going to be nodding their head and they just love everything and they're lapping everything up. So if you ever get into self-doubt for whatever reason, go back to your lighthouse. They're a safety place. And then you'll get back on track and realize why you're there. So am I a lighthouse for uh, this podcast today? <laughs> I don't know because I'm looking down the camera. <laughs> Craig, I've always felt safe around you. You've always had my back and uh, and that's why, you know, we've had such a great relationship. Oh, thank you. So a lot of people think communication is all about talking. And we hear a lot of people who use filler words and they come across as not as credible as what they could be. I how important is the power of pause and how can we use it to um, to most effect when we are communicating or leading someone? It is the most powerful tool anybody can use whenever they are presenting. You listen back to how I've answered some of these questions and you would imagine, I'm imagining, but I'm just in the moment here, uh, that there have been some significant pauses when I'm wanting to really land a message or I slow my speech patterns down. And it gives the audience that time to think and it gives them that time and, you know, that airtime to say, wow, this is really valuable. This is important. I need to hear this message. And so not only does it give you credibility and gravitas as a command position and credibility when you pause, it gives your audience that time to think about what it is that you've just said, to take in that information, to digest it, and to think what they're going to do with it. And it just eliminates those ums and ahs. But boy, does it, it takes a lot of work. How long is a, is a pause too long? How do we know when we are pausing too long and it may come across a little awkward and... You, from an audience perspective, you're going, is this person actually okay? <laughs> I've challenged people to, especially when they're asking a key element, a key point, and it may be one of the most powerful ways you can start a presentation is with a rhetorical question. So that is a question where they have to go into their mind and start thinking about the answer. I'm not looking for a reaction from the audience, a hands up or a yes or whatever. One of those questions which you just answer internally. And when you digest that information and then you're going through your brain cells and memory cells and so forth, you should pause for five seconds. And I will be there when I'm starting or when I'm working with a client and I say, okay, go, hit your rhetorical question. This is your big bang. This is your first impression. This is so critical. And then hit it and then I'll go, and just put my fingers up, count to five. And you just see them going, oh, no, no, I can't do that. I can't pause for five seconds. When you are comfortable with the silence, 
when you are comfortable with that pausing, you become so much more credible and so much more authoritative on stage or in any environment. And it's incredible what it can do, but it takes work. 10 seconds, too long. Somebody will run up and test you, test for a pulse. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I love it. It's good. The power of pause. Let's, uh, you talked about the Big Bang there. And um, you know, normally we associate the Big Bang with either the Big Bang Theory TV program or it's something that's happened in the universe and we're creating a whole new planet or something along those lines. Uh, but when it comes to communication, what is the Big Bang and and how can we leverage it to have great impact um, when it comes to engagement and connection with people? Uh, good old Sheldon and the Big Bang Theory. I love it. That's my spark. Anyhow, we won't go there. <laughs> Very funny program. Haven't seen it for a while. The Big Bang, most people, now most people, whether this is in a meeting, whether this is on stage, whether this is a presentation for VCs, whether it is in a board meeting to executives, they start with boring niceties. Now, we know through research that within one-tenth of a second, you're being judged, and within two to three seconds, people are judging you based on what you say. So if you start with boring niceties, you've lost that impact. You've lost that big bang opportunity, which people forget about. So I'm, my big bang when I talk to any presenter starts from the, the second they can see you. So for instance, as a speaker walking up on stage, I say you walk with purpose, you walk half a step quicker. You have your shoulders back and you walk out there Stand on that spot, pause, and then hit them with a big bang. And that's so powerful. I mean, I've seen so many people start to talk whilst they're walking up to their spot or when they're walking to a whiteboard, for example, in a meeting. The power is in how you structure your start, strengthen your, uh, your posture and walking, but then what's the first words that come out of your mouth, which will be remembered? And, you know, you've got two to three seconds or two to seven seconds, as the research says. Don't start with boring niceties. There's plenty of opportunities to thank people afterwards. There's as blah, blah, blah. On stage, if you're getting introduced, the MC's already given you the big rap. You don't have to go back through your experience and your, your great knowledge. Although there is, a, there is a secret here, just sidebar going off on a tangent. The best way to intertwine credibility in any presentation is to tell stories and where you learnt certain elements of the core elements that you're presenting, rather than say, I went to college and I did this and I did that. Or it could be, when I was at university and I was in a, in a session with uh, with one of the professors, you know, that, that sort of gives credibility automatically. Tangent, but... Yes, start with a big bang, start with a, an opening salvo. It could be a strong statement. It could be a statistic. It could be a quote. It could be a rhetorical question, or it could be a question where you need to elicit a response from the audience. Oh, look, I, I think our audience would love to hear one of your big bangs. How, how about your first impressions, big bang? I, I like that one. <laughs> really? I have to do, do that right now? See? <laughs> See, I have to get into state. I even had to move my stool away for those of you. That's a great visual for those of you listening, obviously. <laughs> well, imagine I've walked up on stage and I'm just pausing. And I've looked at the entire audience, haven't said a word yet. 
How many seconds does it take to make a first impression? How many seconds? At two seconds now, can I see three before we go? Three bid now, are they? At three seconds now, I see four at the front now. Do I see five at the back now? At five, clearly bid. Six before we go, six on the right, six clearly bid. Back at the starter, if you like. Seven seconds now. First second turn, final call, you all done. Silent and finished. Sold. It takes between two to seven seconds to make a first impression. So don't waste it. Don't get up and speak boring niceties. Ah, very good. Well done. Uh, so that lead, maybe maybe we can shift on here a little bit. I know you've been involved in real estate for quite some time. Uh, you were even a CEO of a real estate franchise group. So for you, what was the draw card to going into real estate um, and ending up as a CEO? Everybody at some stage needs to deal with a real estate agent. That's the downside because most people don't trust real estate agents. They have a bit of a reputation. I think that's slowly getting, you know, slowly eroding over, over time. But I like to encourage every agent that I've had the good fortune to encourage and go out and start their own business. I mean, that was my role, to grow the franchise business, to get franchisors on board. It's an incredible, fulfilling profession. When you walk into a household where children may have been born, where family memories have been built, where they've had their son's 21st birthday, whatever it may be, and you get to assist them to market, to sell, to ideally get an incredible, can be life-changing outcome and be a part of that process because you don't sell a home every year. It, generally, there's five to seven transactions in a year and an agent gets to be a part of that. It's a huge deal. And I think that's where getting people on board from a business profession perspective and people wanting to go out and start their own business, I wanted to understand their value set first because if they didn't have that sense of value, that drive, that why, and that it was around people, not property, that's where the difference was made. And so I had the opportunity to help people start their own business, who then helped other people in, the, in a very critical time of their life. It could have been moving into state, it could be due to death, whatever. There's so many reasons why people sell. And to go in there and start with people first and property second. And it's something which I've always taught. So it's, it's no different to what we talked about at the beginning. It's about adding value to people and helping them in that big time life decision. And so I didn't accept franchisors that were, or franchisees, I should say, that were just there thinking, oh, I can make a buck out of this, this is great. There's high commissions, high turnover, fantastic. And I said, well, you're not the person for us. Mm. Fascinating around that people side. Uh, when we look at leaders of the future, uh, sorry, I rephrase that. When we look at the types of characteristics that are important for leaders, uh, to master in the year 2023 and beyond, what are some of the things that you're noticing, you know, one from being, you know, a CEO previously, uh, but now working a lot with a lot of leaders, what, what do you see as going to be important characteristics? I think one of the biggest ones is empathy. Because what a lot of people have gone through, uh, especially people in Melbourne uh, throughout COVID has had an impact on their family life, on their mental state, and so forth. 
So to find, find out and understand what they have experienced and what they've gone through is a really good starting point. People, there's a lot of people and, and you know, this wasn't a national challenge. Well, it was, but there was different challenges in, in each state. So if you're running a national organisation, it's probably in 2023 more than ever, is there a need to adapt your communication and et cetera with people in, say, Melbourne versus people in Perth? And you need to adapt that, that understanding, that empathy to build that team coherence and that leadership of understanding. And when you get that empathy side working well with your entire team, whether it be a small team or a global team or a national team, that takes leadership to the next level. You still need to be confident about what you're doing and how to deliver your strategies and be able to deliver a great presentation on the future and the visualization of where you're going. But if you're coming from a place of understanding and bringing everybody along for the ride with you, whether you're Melbourne-based or Perth-based or Queensland-based, whatever, Brisbane-based, I think that's the most important part. And I've seen and I've heard of large national companies that are missing this big time and it's impacting on the culture of the organization. So kind of seeing a bit of a world around a lot more hyper-personalization in a way, whether it be individually or, or in sort of, as you're talking about in state or specific areas. But how do we keep that balance between hyper-personalization where we get too focused on the individual versus hyper-collectism where we are focusing on the collective group in a way. It's how you communicate on all levels. So a one-on-one scenario, it, the most underrated thing that a leader can do is a check-in, whether it be a call or if you're in the office, how are you going? How's everything traveling? What can I help you with? Just that small check-in is huge to build that connection. So when you come to a larger scale type presentation or organizational presentation, and then you reference certain people or certain understandings of what they're going through, you may not say, and of course, poor old Jane, who's going through this, you know, you can say, well, I understand that not everybody has gone through the same things over the last 18 months, or I understand what's going on currently with the, um, with the cost of living and so forth. And people who you've spoken to will go, they listen to me. They understand me. So it's just you've got to continually check in, and that gives you the information to then relate to them in a bigger scale. And it's easy to do, but it's, you know, depending on your numbers and what you're dealing with, you need a great leadership team who also need to do that. You're talking about uh, checking in there with other people, but we also need to make sure we check in with ourselves and you know you talked about being you know playing sport when you're you're younger you you talk about going to the gym six days a week and for those who can't see warren is relatively buff uh for for a young man and you know as much as we can spend time focusing on making sure that we are healthy that we're trying to look after you know manage our energy in a way we don't always quite get it right and you know life isn't always consistent life isn't always a routine life does throw different things and i know we were chatting before the conversation today around 
we've both got pretty big schedules coming up later this week, some big performances, well, in a way, we call them big performances, where we're up on stage, where we need to be presenting at a very, very high level. And right now we're feeling a bit drained. We're a bit tired. We're, we're stressed a little bit. And uh, for those who can't see, Warren was just blowing his nose. So uh, we're not always going to get it right. But, but how can we try and manage these situations so that when we're ready for, you know, later this week where we do have our, where we are up in and doing some really important presentations and being up on stage and people uh, are really invested in what we are there to to share and what we can draw out of them in the way that we coach them. Uh, what are some strategies that you put in place? I try to still stick with a routine as much as possible. Now, when we're traveling a lot, uh, when we're not feeling as as energetic as we would like, I still will force myself to stick to a routine that I know gets my body moving as an example, or to get my mind activated. Because if I don't, I'm going to let the tiredness or the virus or whatever it may be to become the focal point. And when you make that the focal point, that's all you'll deliver from a presentation point of view. I mean, I've delivered, I remember I did a presentation with somebody, a colleague that you know quite well, it was at uh, the Speakers Institute, and it was on Stagecraft and presentation in Stagecraft. And I flew up on the six o'clock flight from Melbourne to Sydney, and I was pretty average. I was sick as a dog, actually. I'd been feverish that night. Uh, I'd only got about three hours sleep. But it was about showing up in the best version of me, no matter what. And it was a full day delivery, no, relentless, full day with some people who have invested a great deal of money in growing themselves. And so it was all about them and not me. And I just needed to deliver the best I could. And I still remember um, Diane at the end of it, who you know, was so, sort of getting feedback as we like to do at the end of the sessions. And, and she stood up at the back and because and, she was sitting at the back. And she said, Warren, I just want to acknowledge you knowing that you're not feeling well. And if anybody walked in and didn't know that you were not well, you had a virus and you'd been up for you know, most of the night. Nobody would have known. Yet you delivered a sensational session. You didn't miss a beat. And I just want to acknowledge that because I've learned an extremely valuable lesson that no matter how you're feeling, you've got to show up for your teams or for your clients, etc. And I think that's, again, heading back to that focus on it's not about you. I can do this and I've trained myself in regards to being reasonably healthy and what I eat and how I keep fluids up, et cetera. But then I just need to shift my mind away from anything that's, you know, that's making me feel a little bit flat or ill right on to the people who are needing to hear this message. And that my energy levels skyrocket. They, they just go up to almost peak performance levels again but boy, do I crash afterwards. <laughs> the crash is horrible, but it, you know, nobody sees that, so it doesn't matter. A hundred percent. And I think the true professionals can do this. We see this in you know, some of our top facilitators. Um, I've seen it in many athletes as well. I think Karen Perkins, uh, back in the 90s, he was at World Champs in Moscow. And he was on a, you know, he, I can't remember what he had, but he was literally, they couldn't get him off the bed. You know, this is one of the fittest 
uh, humans on the planet. Couldn't get him off his bed for the entire week, so he wasn't training anything. Got up to do the race and broke the world record in an 800 freestyle, which for those who know swimming, 800 freestyle is a very difficult race. It, um, it's, it's got speed in it, but it's got endurance and it's tough. It, it's, it really pushes the boundaries. And so to break a world record was quite phenomenal. So, uh, and I imagine he would have, I think they had to pull him out of the water. He was, you know, just had nothing left. And um, so, yeah, really interesting is that mindset, you know. You've just, you've just belittled my effort of speaking on stage. And, you know, <laughs> it's, it's not quite a 800 metres freestyle, but, you know, it's pretty tough. But you were on stage <laughs> for eight hours. So I, I think it's quite comparable, to be quite honest. And it's about the mindset. And I think for people as well, you, you there's so many things you can achieve in life if you allow your mindset to to focus on what's important and to be able to remove those distractions and things, you know, it doesn't matter how you feel, you can shift your focus to the right things and you can create something really, really special. Yeah. And, and there's one other thing which I'd love to mention. Um, caffeine has a lot to do with it when I'm like that. <laughs> <laughs> Warren, we all know smart people have great answers, but the most successful people ask great questions. When was the last time? you did something for the first time saturday mc the wedding never done it before and i've mc'd uh, national tours of organizations i've mc'd some large conferences single day conferences and i've but i've never mc'd a wedding and you know it's very easy to get drawn into you know, the YouTube phenomenon or the TikTok phenomenon about, you know, you, you have to be the funniest MC in the world to get up there and do it. Um, it was, yeah, it was the first time I've ever done it. For the first time, I did it on Saturday and uh, got some a number of people coming up and say that I did a, a sensational job. So I felt like saying, well, of course I did. That's what I do for a career. <laughs> but they, they didn't realize, that, again, I, I didn't say that, of course, but um, yeah. It's beautiful that it was uh, someone very dear to your heart as well, being in the family. So, you know, beautiful, beautiful moment for you. What is the one question that you would love to solve? Oh. Yeah, okay. I've, I've been contemplating, this is something I've been contemplating for some time. Now, I like to have fun when I present. As you've seen uh, many a time, I am the energy for most facilitations that I do and for most of the presentations that I do. And of course, when you are the MC, you are the CEO, the Chief Energy Officer. But I would love to be able to understand and know how to intertwine humor in every single presentation. I would love to learn that. I'd love to answer that question and be able to have, you know, how unusual that I want to structure a process on how that can be incorporated into every single presentation because scientifically it works. After laughter, and if you look at Dr. Jeffrey Robinson's great uh, famous TED talk, I think there's a laugh, there's a laughing moment every 90 seconds in that TED talk. It, it's the most watched TED talk for a reason. Some clever content, brilliant pausing, but more importantly, 
humorous moments. And it's something which I have, I don't do naturally. And I would love to work out a methodology and answer the question on how anybody can intertwine humor into any presentation. Yeah, I believe there's some very unscientific research that says more funny, more money. Uh, so I think it's a great <laughs> question to be asking. <laughs> yeah, well, I just, yeah, it just fascinates me. I mean, some some people are naturally funny. You know, generally the Irish are naturally funny. I shouldn't sort of pigeonhole, but they are. And yeah, yeah. I'll, if you can work it out, if anybody's out there that's worked out the formula for this, drop me a line. <laughs> Beautiful. Uh, for you, what is an inspiring great leader and who is an inspiring great leader you look up to right now? Yeah, that's there's there's numerous great leaders over over time that I've admired and that I've followed, many of them due to their methodology of communication and presentation uh, and also uncovering the structure and the pattern and the nuances and cadence to their presentations and to their speeches from politicians through to entrepreneurs. But from a leadership point of view, and it's not going to be a surprise to yourself, but I really only have discovered her in the last three years, is Indra Nui. Now, she was the CEO of PepsiCo and is a very compelling woman. She had, she had to overcome a lot of obstacles in her career uh, when PepsiCo was struggling. Coca-Cola was a, a goliath in regards to the fast-moving commercial goods marketplace. PepsiCo was struggling, and she was obviously of Indian descent and a woman and took over the CEO role and absolutely catapulted that business. But then understanding her story, so she ha does have a book just recently released just last year, understanding her story and how much she really cared about her executive team. And I always talk about having a great team around you and the importance of how you deal with them and how you communicate with them. And there's a great story about when she went home to India to visit her mother and everybody was coming around to her house to visit her, she thought, but no, they would breeze past her and go and speak to her mother and say, oh, this is the daughter you've talked about. What an incredible mother you are. You must have been, how you've been able to bring up such an incredible woman over the years and for her success. Not speaking to her, but speaking to her mother about that. And it was a realisation that we are the product of our parents or we are the product of our upbringings. And understanding that, realising the importance of that acknowledgement and she went on to acknowledge the parents of her executive and the feedback that she got and the buy-in in regards to the longevity of the people working with her and the executive team, it changed the entire culture. And that just rang true to me. I just thought, that's brilliant. That's, that was not something that she planned on doing. That's not something which she learned from someone else. It's something which she experienced hands-on. And by the way, this is where a lot of stories can come from. A lot of leadership tools and, and strategies can come from external to what you do. So this was a holiday back to home, her hometown and to see her mother to realize that this was an important moment and then to actually implement that strategy. It was, it blew my mind. Yeah, it was huge. Uh, beautiful. A wonderful human being and a fantastic leader who's worked with some quite big companies around the world. Uh, so, yeah, very well done. 
Now, Warren, this has been a great conversation. Um, how can people learn more about what you do and what is the best way for people to connect with you? It's very simple. Warren Tate, T-A-T-E dot global. That is my website. Go there. And um, of course, Warren Tate speaker coach on all socials. Beautiful. So we'll chuck those in the show notes so people can stay connected with Warren uh, and, and learn lots more about communication. Uh, Warren, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you today. I always enjoy our conversations and this is definitely up there as one of the most fun and enjoyable podcasts that I've ever done. And oh, you say that to everybody, come on. <laughs> <laughs> uh, just making you feel good and make sure you feel like you're cared for. Uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> oh, look, thank you. Look, look, I love the way that you interwove story throughout today's session and, you know, talking about when you were young and the way that you picked up your first job where you thought people were stealing golf balls off the, off the golf course and you're running around with a hard hat on, which I'm sure no occupational health safety um, <laughs> would ever pass nowadays. Um, Not a but, but I can, I can imagine you with this little steel hard hat running around and dodging golf balls, which I think is pretty funny. Uh, your insights around communication, story, leadership uh, is so valuable and it's been great to go deep into those and I'm sure our listeners will learn a lot from them. Uh, so I really appreciate um, even the vulnerability you shared and talking about you know, being nervous around your daughter-in-law's uh, your wedding and being up there and emceeing and how much that meant to you. And I just love that you're a human being that cares so much. You're very human centric. You have a, a huge heart and I really appreciate the work that you do for us at Speakers Institute Corporate and being a great friend. So thank you for your time today and sharing your insights around the world. No, thank you, Craig. I've really enjoyed it. And it's not often that I get to go down various uh, other parts of my life, which not too many people know about. So I really enjoyed today and hopefully people out there have got to know me a little bit better than what they thought they knew. It's time for you to join the Inspiring Great Leaders movement by visiting craigjohns.com.au. Share this podcast on LinkedIn and be sure to hashtag Inspiring Great Leaders. We would love it if you could leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Drop us a line with your feedback and questions and connect with us on the Craig Johns LinkedIn, Facebook and Instagram pages. Be sure to check out the next Inspiring Great Leaders podcast. Where the ordinary don't belong.